0: Thomas McConkey, welcome to the Mythical Jesus podcast. How are you today?
1: I'm doing great. I'm happy to be talking to Bill Real.
0: Awesome. Yeah, you and I were I, I I call you a great friend. I I hope that goes back the other way as well, and I feel like it does. Uh we've known each other for a few years now. Uh we both come from uh the same religious paradigm at least in part, although you have a lot of experience Uh, outside that religious paradigm. But I want to talk today about Jesus and faith development, two things that I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about. But before we jump into that stuff, um, maybe give people, because this audience is going to be a very unique audience. They're never going to have heard you before. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm wondering if you can introduce yourself and let people know kind of the things you're involved in so that people begin to kind of get a feel for who you are. Thanks, Billy. I'll,
1: I'll do my best. And if I miss something that you think would be helpful for the audience, feel free to interrupt me and redirect me. I mean, like you mentioned, so I was raised in the LDS church, but I left it at a really young age and found Buddhism in my adolescence and, you know, really sent down deep roots in that tradition, um, the Hinayana and Mahayana schools, for those who are, you know, in the know with Buddhism. But I've spent 20 years as a student of Buddhism now, and it was, you know, 13, 14 years into my Buddhist practice that I started to feel a drawback to Christianity, and I, I had had such a negative experience with it my first go around, I wasn't sure how to get back into it. But I kept after it, and, you know, several years later, I kind of consider myself a little bit bi-religious, (laughs) bi-cultural, in the sense that I I really love the richness of, you know, what's called the gospel, or you could say the comprehensive teachings of Jesus and the Buddha Dharma, or the the teachings of the Buddha. So I I draw a lot of richness out of a kind of, uh, not just comparative approach, but kind of uh, the, the poetic tapestry, uh, that we can weave with these two traditions. And I, you know, I, I've also uh, been trained in developmental psychology and so got really interested in that along the way. And now I just, you know, run a humble little nonprofit in Salt Lake City, Utah called the Lower Light School of Wisdom. And we're interested in, you know, what classical awakening looks like from a Buddhist perspective. We're interested in what growing up looks like from a developmental perspective and I still love talking salvation and the kingdom of God so
0: you know we do all that
1: here in Salt Lake City so that's a little bit about me
0: <laughs> yeah beautiful
1: beautiful let's start with this draw <clears throat> excuse me
0: let's start with this draw back to Christianity and and as I well know because we come out of the same tradition I understand the tension that is in Mormonism as one begins to wrestle with the things that uh, that seem to fall outside of, of the standard curriculum, and also kind of wrestling with whether you fit or not if you begin to kind of think for yourself. But you, so you leave. And then as you're swimming in this Bo- these Buddhist waters, you you then sense this pull back to Christianity. And with maybe an emphasis on Jesus in terms of your relationship with him, whatever that means, maybe talk for a moment about what that pull back to Christianity looked like.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, maybe it's my personality, but Every time I get a question like that, I you know ten disclaimers come to mind before I open my mouth. Like one of those disclaimers is I have my own experience in Christianity and Buddhism, and I uh, do my best not to assume that it directly applies to anybody. I mean, I hope it's useful for the people listening to just you know hear some storytelling, and you know I, I hope this conversation you know helps your audience kind of reflect on their own personal. Kind of journey, we could say. But, you know, th- this is not normative, right? This is just kind of the, the peculiar place I was brought up in and, you know, how I, how I evolved in this environment. So there you go. Take everything I say with a grain of salt and, um, only take what is useful and verifiable, as the Buddha said. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> but anyway, deep into my Buddhist practice, years into my Buddhist practice, I felt this draw to Christianity and it, didn't come from a kind of reasoned place. I hadn't thought it through. It didn't make sense as such to, quote, go back to church. And yet I felt the pull of, I would say, Christ. There's something about, and that, again, that's a loaded word. That can mean a lot of different things to different people. But there was something about that icon. There was something About that symbol, whatever the word Christ was pointing to, it was something that I longed for. And I found my way back, uh, you know, happened to be in a Mormon congregation. And since then, you know, over the last seven years, I've really done my best to become a diligent student of Christianity. And I have a little bit of insight, I think, into like what it was. Um, I don't know if I want to go too far down that rabbit hole just yet, but since you asked the question, I'll just say that. Um, I found that in Buddhism, I was given incredible instruction and support in uh, cultivating a direct insight that who I am at the deepest level is distinct from my physical body and my thinking mind. (laughs) And I want to do a full pause on that because it's a really big deal, at least for me, to, to have been shepherded, I'm mixing metaphors here, but to have been brought up in that tradition and taught how to investigate myself and in reality to the point where it became utterly obvious that I am not who I thought I was. And who we actually are as human beings is a—it's un, an unspeakably beautiful mystery that somehow we seem to be invited to participate in. I got all that from Buddhism, and I'm just barely hinting at it here, but it just brought me incredible freedom, and power, and joy, and psychological, emotional healing, and so many things. And with all that said, there was something about the language, the poetry, the patterning, the smells and bells of Christianity. that. Opened my heart in a unique way. It's not that Buddhism didn't crack my heart open; it certainly did. And yet, there was something for me in, you know, in the forms of the tradition of Christianity that that really pierced me in a way that I think I personally was drawn to. And I, you know, I talk to Buddhists who, you know, I've shared this story with a lot of my Buddhist friends, and they are, you know, they're supportive and unmoved. But you know, they they don't talk to me and feel like, oh, maybe I should. You know, get baptized, and you know, other people have different karma and different paths laid out for them. So it's it's fascinating, kind of what what forms and what uh, practices hold us and help grow us up. So that's a little bit. Uh, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, I love that. There's there's this wisdom saying in Buddhism right? That if we, that there's the fingers, you know, the finger pointing at the moon and and don't mistake the finger for the moon, right? There's that idea. And as I look around at various religious paradigms, not only the one that you and I came out of, but even, even other paradigms within Christianity, as well as other paradigms outside Christianity, all of them are fingers pointing to the moon. Um, And here's what I want to say. So, in each paradigm, and not just again, not just the one we grew up in, but in each paradigm, each of those fingers seems to say, "Like, hey, we've we've got a better feel for this than those other guys, and we've got we've got the right rules in place, we've got the right uh, lines in the sand, we've got the right interpretations." And what ends up happening is there's this dogma in every system you go to, both religious and non-religious. There's dogma all over. Mm -hmm. And that dogma causes us to see Christ through a certain lens. He's interpreted for us. And my question Mm -hmm. to you is maybe uh, on an experiential level, when you woke up to that, what was it like to go back into the Christ story taking like setting aside the best you can we it's impossible to do perfectly but to set aside the best you can what everybody else gave you about jesus and to go back in with new eyes
1: man that is such a beautifully asked question though i just almost don't even want to taint your question with some attempt to a response i love how you asked that question um wow i'm just touched by that deeply um (laughs) Ah, I'm a little speechless. Thank you. Thanks for expressing something. So no beautiful. problem. Just takes me to an amazing place. Um I I felt like it was so much easier to just be totally transported by the beauty of the cosmos when I like my second lap around back to Christianity. When I when I didn't feel like I had to make any particular thing of Jesus, when I could just Stand naked before the Christ, if I can, you know, evoke that imagery. It, just the power of whatever that mystery is that Christianity is pointing to—it it was arresting to me. It was just, you know, just absolutely life and mind and soul-changing to me. And I, I found that I cared so much less about any idea, any belief that my mind could conjure or formulate around Christ, and just I was into the direct experience. I wanted to mainline God, if you will. And that, that's what it felt like to come back around for me. And I, I owe a lot of that to Buddhism. I mean, I think, um, you know, Buddhism helped me cultivate great doubt, <laughs> you know, great doubt in all of the mind's uh, phantasmagoria and uh, its illusions and all of its meaning making not that that's not significant and that the meaning our minds make isn't really useful and vital even but it helped me see through that and, you know take it uh, a little bit less seriously and so i think it set me up to just appreciate whatever goodness there is in the universe whatever love is available to us and you know wants to know us (laughs) and whatever love we want to know and become a part of ourselves i think it you know i was in a position to do that a little bit better my second time around
0: so as you as you were saying that it, it brought up for me similar things and i i don't know that i have the the language you have to kind of capture it but I, I'm re- You know, I, I had no religious background, Thomas, and then I'm a 17 year old kid and I'm thrown into, cause I'm excited and I, and I find it so fascinating and it, I just fall in love uh, with Mormonism. And so at 17 yeah. years old, I, I dive into it and I just, I just assume that the Jesus I'm being handed. And and again, I'm not trying to have this conversation in a way that we're being critical of any religious paradigm, the Jesus I was handed, uh, I took it for granted. And in, in a curriculum of a religious system, that religious system only shares the parts of the elephant that it, that it knows it can deal with in healthy ways. And then it kind of shields us from the parts of the elephant that don't fit that. And, and so I was given like a piece of Jesus, and sure. and and a piece of Jesus that wasn't exactly uh, accurate, or maybe had some some hidden places to him. And, and as I as I deconstructed my religious system, and as I got back into Jesus, um, I, I, it's like I fell in love with a completely different thing. I I start reading the New Testament again and with new eyes like i'm i'm taking i'm taking all of the biases to the best of my ability i'm setting them off to the side and i'm now reading the jesus story again almost for the first time because i'm now allowed to make whatever meaning i can make or want to make yeah. and i'm like you and i have talked in person when we've been together about christ um i am amazed at the depth that's in this story now mm. knowing all the biblical criticism, all the the reasons that are out there for us to doubt who the authors are and when they wrote it and how much of it's mm. myth. And even in spite of all of that, the story seems so rich and deep. And it's almost like you can dig it whatever layer you want to, and there's plenty there to keep you busy for a lifetime. Um, your thoughts, maybe in particular... Are there any specific stories in the Christ narrative that you feel like, man, when I read that story with new eyes, this is what I felt or here's what I was thinking?
1: Yeah. Well, I love, I mean, your last two questions. First, talking about, uh, you used the word dogma, meaning, you know, whatever belief system we are brought up in there tends to be a mentality that, well, this is what it is. like You were talking about our lines that we draw on the sand, our boundaries, our, our terms, our definitions, our rituals. We we tend to have an attitude that this is it. This is really how it's done. And you're pointing, for me, you're pointing to a profoundly developmental pattern. And, and what you're just sharing now about, you know, different levels of Christ and different ways to relate um, to the story and to this reality is also, to me, it's a profoundly developmental conversation. I think I'm in good company to have that conversation. Uh, So, absolutely. I mean, that's what's amazing about not just Christianity, but about reality, really, that any mind we bring to it, um, any attitude or a series of assumptions or perspectives, like that's how the world will present to us. You know, like we're we're very much in developmental terms creating the world moment to moment as it creates us back. So, it's a, it's a really creative act to be a human being. And, you know, Christianity might be one of my favorite playgrounds for just, you know, making meaning and having experience. So, it's amazing how many different ways the Christ operates. You asked me, sorry, I had trouble staying on track here with you tonight, Bill. I just waxed so. Uh, my, my soul soars when I talk to you, <laughs> but back to your question.
0: For me, <laughs> one of the fun things about having a conversation with you is not knowing where the conversation's going to go. <laughs> and, and I mean that in the most beautiful way because you tend <laughs> to take you. There's a way in which we've always done this thing and you tend to throw that out the door and do this a different way. And I love that. So <laughs> So go whatever direction you feel to go.
1: I appreciate that, though. If you're relaxed, I'm relaxed. I mean, part of your question, though, I want to, I want to be a nice interviewee here, a nice guest on your podcast and answer your questions. You asked me, like, if there's a particular version or interpretation. And for whatever reason, I mean, in this moment, who comes to mind is, uh, Pierre Terre de Chardin, a Jesuit priest way ahead of his time in the 20th century, who, I mean, in a nutshell is I don't understand his work nearly as well as others who understand him. But he, you know, among other things, uh, Teilhard was a very accomplished scientist. He's a rigorous scientific thinker. And as far as I can tell, something he succeeded in doing, at least for my own, by my own standards, he succeeded in kind of replacing a Judaic history of the world, which Christianity inherited more or less, and said, you know, this is how old the earth is and this is how it was created, etc. He replaced the kind of uh, the cosmology of the Hebrew Bible with a modern scientific worldview, and named like the the evolutionary Omega pole of the creative cosmos the Christ. So Christ is the omega pole that persuades us all into deeper embrace and fuller compassion. And I mean, it's, it's remarkable, uh, how, how Théard sings within the tradition of Christianity. And he's just another example of a guy who, you know, people weren't talking like that in, you know, like early 19th century Protestant America. They weren't talking like Pierre Théard de Chardin, but in the 20th century, after you know, you get a little um, ev- maturity of evolutionary theory and some quantum mechanics in there, and I mean, Christianity is going different places as is human consciousness. I think.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Um, in the Mythical Jesus podcast, one of the things we do is we we just go verse by verse. So we started off in Mark, since that's supposed to be mm-hmm. the earliest text, and and then we just. <laughs> Read a few verses as long as the stories you know as long as those verses are part of one coherent story and and start to look at Jesus from uh, a developmental standpoint. I'll give one example. Uh, we did an episode where we talked about the old wine skins and the new wine mm. and and how old wine skins from a developmental standpoint like we we get in to, uh, habits. We get into beliefs that we need to maintain our safety. And, and as we age, sometimes it gets tougher to relinquish those, to, to recognize like, Oh, I thought I had it put together, but I don't. And so when we add Ooh. new wine to an old wine skin, um, within a religious paradigm, for instance, when you give, when you make change, when you say, okay, we used to do it this way in church, and now we're going to do it this other way. The, the older generation can be more resistant sometimes to that, and and in some ways they are the old wine skins, and here's this new wine that's being offered, and those aren't always a good mix. I'm curious, maybe what you think of Jesus from a developmental standpoint in two ways. One, if there's anything he's teaching, and I know there's lots of things, but I'm putting you on the spot to have you recall one because we've we've had this converse these conversations, so I know that you're familiar with these stories and you see connections to Jesus in development. Um, But I'm going to put you on the spot and see if maybe you can pull one of those out of your hat to talk about. Um, The other thing is just Jesus himself, whoever that is, myth or historical or somewhere in between, what your thoughts are on the character that's presented to us in those stories about Mm. where he is developmentally?
1: Yeah, those are really interesting questions. Well, let's let's do one at a time so that I don't, you know, wrap myself into a complete (laughs) tangle and get off track again. Sure. So let's
0: start off with the teachings of Jesus, the stories he tells. What do you pick up from him in terms of what he's trying to do in in terms of where his culture's at developmentally and maybe what he's trying to do to nudge them somewhere else? Well,
1: yeah, one verse comes to mind. You're right. I, I, I experienced the, the Jesus I read about in the New Testament, and I also love the, uh, uh, what do we call them, the luminous Gospels, or the wisdom texts that weren't canonized, but when you look at um, uh, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, and texts like this, I mean, there, there's a lot of wisdom in those texts that I, you know, I wish we had better access to in our particular culture, um, but amazing wisdom from Jesus, and I, my sense is that he was quite precocious or intuitive developmentally. I, I get the sense from the Jesus I read that this guy knew in his bones that development was a thing. Um, one verse that comes to mind, it's in Luke uh, chapter 14, and it, it's something that, in like fact, everyone's, well, if you're familiar with the Bible, most people remember this. It's something like, if anyone comes to me and does not hate their father and mother or wife, children, brothers and sisters. Even their own life, uh, that person cannot be my disciple. And you know, this is this is a hard saying. Like, how, what do you mean? Like, I have to hate my mother and father in order to be your disciple. And you know, I I think a, an elegant developmental rendering of this verse, which I I first heard this interpretation from the recently deceased Father Thomas Keating, and just. And I really love his body of work. For those who are interested in how development interfaces with Christianity, I think Father Thomas Keating is one of the best. Um, But anyway, you know, as he, as he explicated this verse, he said, well, developmentally, we all go through a period where we're primarily identified with tribe, with family, with peers. It's, it's our community that determines how we look, how we think, how we talk. And we feel tremendous tension whenever we're in dissonance with, uh, popular thought and popular belief and behavior. And I, I think this is a beautiful example of Jesus saying, look, if, if you care more about what the people closest to you think about you, you're never going to develop into the kind of freedom that the gospel asks of you. You'll never be able to own yourself and be yourself. You'll be held by other relationships that will hold you down. And so it comes out, you know, and it's translated. I read, I was uh, looking at the uh, uh, New International version there, and you know, however it gets translated into English, it, it sounds pretty harsh to hate your mother and father, but when we look at it from a developmental lens, it it really paints a different picture. I think Jesus really knew what was holding people back. And I think another, let me do, while I'm, you know, kind of on a roll here, I'd like to think I'm on a roll. You know, when we look at um, the temptations of Jesus before he started his ministry, in the desert, for 40 days, 40 nights, fasting, praying, and he's tempted by the devil. And the first temptation is, you know, the devil says, turn these stones into bread. Second temptation is throw yourself off, you know, this temple roof and you're, the, the angels will catch you. They won't, they won't let, there won't be a scratch on you. And then he takes him to the top of, I think it's the hill of Jerusalem. I can't remember. Um, and says, you know, if you worship me, all these, you know, all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. And it's fascinating to me that these temptations more or less perfectly mirror the earliest stages of development where our preoccupations from the moment we're born are survival and uh, esteem fitting in with, you know, the people who can protect us and care for us and power, the need to be able to exercise our personal will and power. And these are developmental qualities that come up in us by the age of 18 months. And in the very kind of foundations of the gospel story is Jesus overcoming those temptations symbolically i think the bible is pointing us to a human being who can transcend these kind of base appetites and impulses and actually become a true human being so so in the structure of the gospel narrative is a profoundly developmental message i think
0: yeah i'm i'm as you're sharing those two examples i'm drawn to others and it it leads to the second question so i I, I think of, for instance, I think it's early on in Mark chapter, maybe even chapter one, where it mentions that Jesus is called into the wilderness, right? Early on in that ethnocentric, that tribal lens, like uh, we we come to understand like, oh, there's a system in place, and that system works, and I can depend on it. And at yeah. some point, there's a fracture... And we realize that we're going to have to take this thing apart and look at all these pieces one by one. We're going to have to set some off to the side and now we're going to have to rebuild something. And in that time spent like questioning and thinking and wrestling with the system you used to think fit together and now it doesn't it is often kind of feels like a wilderness and in some ways i i often feel like the the narrative of the christ is almost a developmental story yeah. uh, in a lot of ways and and so my next question the second question of that was Maybe in terms of I don't know that we want to lay out like hey we think his culture is in you know Fowler stage three and the and <laughs> Jesus is in stage four like I don't want to do that but what I want to do is maybe have you talk for a moment about what your perception is of the culture that Jesus is living in maybe some mm-hmm. of the char- the developmental characteristics of where they're at and then maybe talk for a moment about where you perceive and again I'm not holding you to it. Um, but what you perceive from a developmental standpoint of where Jesus himself is and, and how those two things are kind of juxtaposed against each other, the culture as well as the Christ.
1: Yeah, I know. And th- this, is, this is a question that I've been interested in for many years, and I, I have investigated it enough to appreciate its complexity. So there's a lot I don't know, and there's a lot I can't say. <laughs> about this, but just a few thoughts come to mind. I mean, certainly there's a lot of evidence um, in biblical studies and the Bible itself that um, what Jesus seems to be pushing back against is a culture of mm, uh, religious vanity. Or or doing things for appearance itself, you know, that talks about the priests wearing their long flowing robes and, you know, making spectacles of themselves, you know, praying in public. Everything is about, well, if we put it in modern terms, it's it's these psychological stages of conformity where, you know, our identity is held in the collective and we're not able to see outside of our in-group, and therefore, we're not able to have compassion towards those who aren't a part of our in-group. And, you know, Jesus's ministry, I don't claim to be an expert here. I think I'm a better Buddhist than a Christian at the end of the day, but I love Christianity, so I'll I'll talk Christianity the best I can. I, I think Jesus's ministry is one account after another of Jesus befriending and fellowshipping the marginalized disenfranchised, the, the despised of society. So he certainly seems to be working a kind of developmental angle where people who were in power, people who were esteemed in, in that time, uh, they weren't able to be kind to the prostitute, to the leper, except women, for that matter. And Jesus was coming from a place saying, like, look, the, these are all sons and daughters of God. Can you see that? So to me, that gets into my kind of second observation. And I, I don't know how popular this opinion is because I haven't tried it with people who are kind of working in the same space. Well, my dog just came in. She wants in on this interview. So what I would say is that, um, Jesus to me represents a profoundly integrated and healthy human being who is sufficiently rational to appreciate that, say, a man is not better than a woman, a free person is not better than a slave, a Jew is not inherently better than a Greek. That awareness that Paul, you know, Paul really renders it poetically in his epistles, but You know, that awareness that I think Jesus lived and taught, it arises at, you know, what we might call the achiever stage or mature third person consciousness or in spiral dynamics where, you know, we talk about the orange meme. It's that altitude of development where if we're genuinely rational, we realize we're able to put ourselves in the shoes of another like in a real way to live in their skin, to imagine what it would be like to be them, and therefore to feel real pain when other people are denied the same rights we enjoy. So all that to say that I, I think I've found that it's popular for some people to look at Jesus and say, oh, he was he was nine stages ahead of, you know, his, like, current cultural context. Maybe, but I, I think the evidence is stronger that, like, Jesus was made the historical Jesus, and who knows knows who the historical Jesus actually was, but to me it seems that he was one of the first, maybe the first and best example of what a truly mature, rational human being was capable of, the, the kindness, the love, the compassion, the forgiveness that was sorely lacking in society at that time and is sorely lacking today. So that's my move, and I'm going to put it to Bill Rill and ask you to, you know, um, <laughs> so do battle with me here. Do some developmental battle.
0: <laughs> yeah, as as I was. So you're you're further ahead than me in this developmental process, and in, in many ways, the last time you and I had this conversation, I'm f- I want because we're taught we're taught that Jesus is the epiphany. Uh, of development in some ways. And then, and then in other ways, we also have this paradigm. If we go back to, for instance, Fowler's stages of faith, and we say like, here's what stage one is, and here's stage two, and here's stage three. And then when we get to the end and we say like, here's these people who at the end of development uh, in Fowler's model, they're sacrificing their their own lives for the cause because they know it's right. And so we throw out names like Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King, and we throw out Jesus and we say, Jesus is the epiphany of right. development, And so right. the first time you and I had this conversation, I'm, I'm saying, hey, Thomas McConkie, tell me where Jesus <laughs> is in development. And I'm <laughs> expecting, I'm expecting <laughs> you to go like, yeah, you know, let's lay out all the stages and let's pick the most developed person that's ever lived and there's Jesus. And when you, <laughs> right. when you said like, look, you can, you can believe that, I'm not going to take that from you, but, but my gut tells me he's something shy of that. Uh, it was it was kind of like hard for me to go like, oh, I, I don't know how to make that fit because Jesus is perfect, right? Um, yeah. But as I've wrestled with it over the months, and, and I think maybe this event might have been maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, uh, maybe even longer. And when I had this conversation since then, this wrestling with that, I agree with you. Uh, mm-hmm. Jesus is ahead of his collective culture. Yeah. But there's still a tension there that he is still at times kind of rolling up his sleeves and fighting with these guys, at least intellectually. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I'm trying to think here offhand, let me pull. So if, if we're thinking about Jesus and, and I'll tie it into maybe the next question, which is, Jesus seems to constantly be wanting to put the religious authorities of his day kind of in their place. (laughs) Like you guys aren't nice. And now I'm going to show you with my witty comments, how not nice you are. (laughs) Right. And there's a little bit of doing battle. And I know from my own life when I'm in that space where I'm just going to keep coming back to fight the religious authorities, yeah. um, I'm not exactly in the most developed space to be in, right? Like, I'm, I'm not giving <laughs> them their own room to be who they are, where they are in that moment. Um, <laughs> but I will say this, and this is where I'm going to walk into a different direction, which is that the religious systems of our day, and it doesn't matter to me which one you pick, but the ones that are unhealthy— They tend to, within Christianity, they tend to use Jesus as a way to hold up their authority and delineate even further the us versus them. When what you seem to point out is that Jesus seems to be doing the opposite, which is being critical of the religious authorities and saying there is no more us versus them. We are all human. Yeah. Um, Your thoughts maybe on that?
1: Well, one of the things we do when we assess somebody's development, and we do that using a specific protocol, a psychometric test or instrument, one of the questions you ask is, what is the earliest stage that this kind of behavior is possible, right? Because, you know, somebody – how can I give a brief example of this – um, let's use the Jesus, example. let's use the current example. Um, when Jesus speaks very directly to the value of a human soul, um, and that it's the Father's good pleasure to give all of us the kingdom, not just the, you know, scribes and the tax collectors and the, you know, religious scholars, he's taking a stand for what we might call, in modern parlance, human rights. And, you know, somebody at level ten thousand could take a stand for human rights, but so could somebody at the achiever stage. And so you 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 it's tempting, especially with a historical character like Jesus, to say, like, oh, he's coming from the most advanced developmental stage possible. But I think where the really rich evidence exists for the, the world view Jesus was coming from. Um, lies somewhere around that very mature, healthy, beautiful, and virtuous kind of rational range. But let me qualify this, and and then I'll let you move on, because I mentioned there's quite a bit of complexity here, um, more than we can even begin to name. There's a a tendency uh, that I think is a dangerous one in developmental studies uh, to assume somebody like Jesus ought to be a, quote, late stage And implicit in that assumption is that it would be better if Jesus were a late stage than an early stage. (laughs) Like, to to make that really stark, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that the historical Jesus really did walk on water. If he did, would it matter if he was stage 12 or stage 4? (laughs) My point being, like, we have these assumptions about what it means to be late stage, and I think. They're dangerous assumptions. And in Jesus' particular case, um, I think the evidence shows that he was late stage for his time and context 2,000 years ago. But it wasn't just stages of development that was potent about Jesus. I think it was his uh, his state stage or the state of consciousness. the You could say the uh, lens through which he was looking at the world, so to speak, Was a non-dual lens, meaning that like reading his words directly, it's clear when he says I and the Father are one. No question, this guy has penetrated the depths of reality and understands that you know there is a non-dual unitive reality that he calls spirit or ruach, and it animates all things. And in it, we live, move, and have our being. That that's an insight that can come at many stages of development, and that's a different metric of development that. I think uh, some people don't talk about as much or take into account. So uh, ignore all the complexity that just came out of my mouth. And I'll, I'll just say that, you know, we can measure a stage of development. But we also have to look at somebody's, like, the state, the uh, in meditative or otherwise state that they have permanent access to. And I think, you know, the historical Jesus seemed to have an incredibly mature state that he had stable access to, which I think was where a lot of the potency of his ministry came from. Those are some thoughts about it. Anyway. Yeah,
0: that's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Uh, and and I, I'm telling you, the listeners to this this particular podcast are really going to enjoy uh, this conversation. It's right up the alley of the kinds of things that we're wrestling with and talking about. Um, I want to go <laughs> off in a little different direction. I want to talk a little cool. more development, uh, but outside of necessarily Jesus, although you're welcome to bring him in at any point <laughs> uh, if he serves as an example. So let me put it this way. When we are in earlier stages of development, we we often feel some level of having arrived, some level of like, this is the pinnacle and it's working perfectly. And I just need to kind of keep this going now, maybe learn some more, but nothing drastic needs to change. Right. I've, I've gotten right. there. And at some point, like though that group, and I don't mean this as a negative, but it, it feels this way to me because I'm still kind of in the midst of this frustration with how this development plays out and how these fractures occur. But in those earlier stages It's hard to go to that group and say, "Here's development. Here's what it looks like. Here's the stages. Here's you know, here's the traits here," because nobody, everybody is resistant on a personal, individual level if there's any indication that they're somehow. Um, at a lower stage of development, right? And, and again, I know you don't like these hierarchies, but... Well, no, hierarchies have their
1: place. I'm, I'm right. not these hierarchies as such.
0: So when one is at an earlier stage and there's plenty of stages ahead of them and life is working so good, there's a lot of resistance in your mind to even accepting or listening to or opening up your mind and making space for developmental theory. So I'll say that. Then I yeah. say... So the people who are listening to this podcast, it's because they're open to Jesus being at least in part myth. They're open yeah. to the conversation that something fractured in their world that now led them to deconstructing and being open to that. Yeah. So knowing that, this, I can safely assume that this listenership, who's willing to hear about a mythical Christ, yeah. is, is already... Um, fractured in some way from their ethnocentricity, from their tribal lens, at least in part. So having, now again, having said all of that, (laughs) my question is um, the idea of fracture, the idea of at one time you belonged to a tribe and whether you wanted to continue belonging or not, something pushed you or pulled you uh, to the margins or even outside of that tribe, and there's a battle going on between like belonging and authenticity. um again, whether you want it or not, for those who have who have gotten to this this next space, it happened regardless. Um, maybe your thoughts on the fracture that pulls you into this this space where now everything has to be to be uh, wrestled with and and almost like you, like you now know it, you come to grips and say like, Oh, the, the paradigm I was given doesn't quite work. And now I have to start taking something apart. Maybe talk about the tension that's there and because people are hurt and it's, and it feels unhealthy. Although you and I on the other side of that would say like, no, 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 lean into it. It's the healthiest thing you're ever going to do. Talk for a moment about that tension that's in that space when you first Wake up to oh my goodness, this doesn't fit anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's a really uh, big playing field you've opened up, Bill. <laughs> Is there anything specific about that disorientation you want me to speak to, or just kind of in general?
0: No, 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 I uh, could specifically, do either, yeah, yeah for, you can talk generally, you can go any direction you want, but um, I think one of the greatest tensions in this fractured moment is that you want nothing more than to still belong to this tribe.
1: Yeah.
0: And on the other hand, you no longer can be not authentic Yeah. and you're having to come to grips that you may not be able to exactly do both mm-hmm. and, and not getting the validation, not getting the belonging hurts awfully bad yeah, and so for probably. listeners who are in the yeah. middle of that hurt, any thoughts you have that would maybe help them lean into um, lean into the acceptance that you're going to have to lose something, but there's also something to be gained?
1: Yeah, oh, thank you. That's really clear. Mm-hmm. Um, what comes to mind is the pain-pleasure principle. Right. The, you know, this basic uh, observation, I'll say, that at a biological level, we're programmed to move towards pleasure and move away from pain. And that plays out developmentally. Right. It, it feels uh, the mind prefers to have answers or feel like it has answers than to be confused. It's It's acutely uncomfortable to live in a reality where we don't know what's real anymore. And so that confusion or disorientation, it will drive us to try to find answers and reorient ourselves. So what I would say to anybody who's kind of working in this territory where they they feel pain and they feel disorientation and confusion and they uh, are in a place where they remember what it felt like to belong to a tribe and to have a kind of unified belief system that kind of explained reality and human life to them, but they're just far enough away from it. It's fractured enough to to use your term that they have this deep sense that like they can either never go back or how on earth could I ever go back? Right. So I'm just kind of describing the territory you've laid out. What I would say to that, is that the pain is salutary, <laughs> or we could even say, in a Christian sense, salvific. <laughs> what I mean by that is, at, at a at a biological level, when we're suffering, when we're disoriented, when you feel like we're out in the wilderness, lost from the tribe, we, we can feel existential and annihilatory fear that, you know, my life is going to end, this is it for me. And I would say that that's actually... That seems to be nature's developmental and evolutionary fuel. If we can actually stay present to that disorienting pain, what we find at a, you know, a very subtle level of our own being is that that, that pain and discomfort is metabolizing and grinding up what used to be the structure and the scaffold that held our life and our mind together, and it's being uh, repurposed, right, um, upcycled into a new human life. And when we really, if I'm just using words, words are imperfect, I'm a finger pointing at the moon right now, but I have a sense that all of us have an intuition of what I'm saying, which is we know that if we can really stay present in pain Confusion, discomfort, that we will die to everything we're not. And what will be left of us at the end of that crucifixion will be what we actually are. The the part of us that cannot be broken, the part of us that does not die. And I think that's why you said a moment ago, Bill, like, you know, hey, for those who've, you know, like undergone these passages again and again, we know it's, The best possible thing that can happen to a human being, which paradoxically also is a profound catastrophe. I think you say that because you, you know, this path intimately yourself. And, you know, that, that's what I would say to anybody who's in a developmental moment or out in the wilderness here to really make a sacrament of the pain and to trust there is a deep intelligence to to nature to your own humanity that that knows how to grow and knows how to uh transcend your you know current level of being and give birth to something new. Wow,
0: beautiful. That's gorgeous stuff. That that is that's for the listeners who again aren't familiar with the 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 Mormon faith paradigm where A lot of folks who are going through these transitions know who Thomas McConkie is. You're getting a feel for the beautiful language you use and how people can feel as you're talking, like the truth of what you're talking about. Um, I want to use an example of Jesus and then walk it into using that to form the next question, which is that Jesus, as he did things early on in his ministry, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, others would point to him and say, there's one who speaks as if they have authority. And there's a recognition that as this fracture is occurring, one of the developmental processes that are working themselves out is that in earlier stages, we looked at the authorities of our tribe and we knew those authorities were the ones to trust. If they didn't have the answers, they soon would, and they would have them before everybody else, and they probably already had them already. And so we would look to these these authorities as if they're the experts, as if they have the greatest of all wisdom. And then as this fracture begins to take place, we begin to notice that our authorities don't have all the answers. And, and as that happens, the next follow-up is that we start to open ourselves up to looking for wisdom elsewhere. Like there has to be some authority somewhere who's got this figured out. And that plays it out, plays itself out kind of in a a strange way in that we kind of test those other places first, but not really open to integrating what's there. Almost just kind of testing the waters, dipping our toe in. And, And then there comes a space later on where we really sincerely look for wisdom outside of our own tribe and then it almost comes back to a place where you, where you notice like, oh, I have wisdom inside of me. And the things that I'm thinking about and saying have as much value as these authorities that are out there. Um, I wonder if you can talk, because again, the people listening, this all sounds familiar, and they're trying to work out and think about their own development. Maybe talk for a moment about that shifting to an inner authority, uh, and and any thoughts you have on like what's going on in that process, con- in, in your conscious or or even subconscious or unconscious mind.
1: I know that's an amazing question, Bill. What I what I hear you pointing to is another kind of developmental fulcrum or a a threshold that we cross, and uh, it, you laid out beautifully this territory we're in where. Um, you know, authority is externalized. We, we follow marching orders. We've all done that. Every human being listening to this podcast, uh, lived a life for many years where it didn't even occur to us to look for authority anywhere, but, you know, the authority figures of, you know, whatever our community or cultural context provided. And something does indeed shift and it moves from, uh, what I might call positional authority. When, when our sense of authority is externalized strictly, it means that whoever's in the position of authority has authority. And when, when authority is internalized, and we have to develop for this because our, our thinking has to become more subtle and we start to look not for social power, which is not unlike a primate colony. But we start to look for objective evidence, like what's true, irrespective of what anybody says is true or not. Right? Just because Donald Trump is president doesn't mean it's true. Just because the Bible, because it's written in the Bible, doesn't mean it's true. We start to have these thoughts, like, well, show me the evidence. Can I verify this um, somehow in a third-person, objective, empirical sense? So there, there's a lot to say about that developmental move, but any human being who moves into, you know, the third person of development, uh, they have that experience where no longer are... Uh, positions of authority or social context enough to convince us that this is the way to do things. We actually need a reason to do them. We need evidence. And it's interesting, as you ask that question, Bill, it's not the Christian tradition that comes to mind, but I think the Buddhist tradition really shines here. I think there's a strong historical argument to be made that the Buddha was the first, let's say, religious authority who ever lived Who didn't ask to be respected because of his position, but strongly encouraged his students to investigate the reality of his claims for themselves. So the the Buddha was ahead of his time. He was kind of like a, a proto scientist himself, and that he understood that the cultural context in which he was working would encourage people to just blindly believe whatever he says. So don't do that. If you blindly believe what I say, you will never have the joy and satisfaction of discovering for yourself directly through your own experience. So, you know, there are interesting historical examples of religious leaders who are, I think, tuned into this kind of development. And uh, my sense is that, you know, in, in order to really uh, flower, and flourish as human beings, um, we, we need to grow into a certain maturity where we can uh, be our own authority.
0: Let me ask you one more thing and then we'll wrap up, which is um, people, human beings, when all this development plays itself out, folks often feel they simply have to let go of that tribe that they were raised in. Like they have to leave. They've, on some level, they feel like they've outgrown it, uh, and 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 they go and they never look back. They they don't they don't come back. Yeah. Uh, your your story is very different and and still perplexing to me, even as I sit and think about all that's happened to me in the last decade. Um, and I love, I love the tribe I came from and I so wished I could have been both in the tribe and been in the tribe in my own way. And, and yeah. that didn't work. Yeah. Um, and, and yet it feels from a developmental standpoint that we arrive at a place, whether we go back into the tribe literally or not, we at least make a space to see value in what that tribe gave us. And we recognize like, oh, it was just doing the best it could do. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe talk for a moment, because maybe this is just that, that question I'm posing where it's like, hey, Thomas, explain to me how you did the thing I don't think I can do. Um, help maybe the audience or me specifically understand like, What went, like, what, and again, I know it's like a 10-hour question, but I don't, I don't (laughs) need the long answer. Maybe give us an insight or two into what allowed you to walk away from a tribe, seeing its shortcomings, and then as you became a, a, a mature adult, not, not ignoring those shortcomings, but seeing that, oh, I am now in my own space that I could if I wanted, I could go back into that thing and I could do this differently. Like maybe talk about an insight or two that came along as you, as you were working within yourself to go back into this tribe that you left.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. Um, well, something that occurs to me, a little factoid uh, that comes up in my mind as you're asking that question, though, is that the millennial generation you know, loosely defined people born between 1981-1997. Um, we are the most numerous generation in America ever, and we are also the least religious. They're, they're, we are less affiliated with any formal religion than any uh, generation in history prior. And, you know, you're, what, a year or two or years older than me? Let's call us all millennials, or at least cuss millennials and whatever. Um, this is the zeitgeist, this is the time we live in where all of us are kind of asking and living out the question you just asked, which is how do I stay, how do I leave, how do I make sense of this? For me, I'll, I'll answer, I'll respond in a personal way. Um, I I was dissatisfied with my life in Christianity as a, uh, let's say, a, uh, a tween and <laughs> an early adolescent left, and I um, really threw myself into Buddhism, and the deeper I got into it, the more I entered community or sangha, uh, the more dysfunction I found. And, and that's not a comment about Buddhism, it's a comment about humanity. I, I experienced deeply dysfunctional humanity in Buddhism, and by the time I swung back around to Christianity and found myself interested in, you know, the, the mythos and the the, the uh, the patterning of the gospel and everything we talked about earlier as I got interested in Christianity again, I, you know, dipped my toe in and, uh, jumped into a congregation to try it out. And I, I had the, uh, the benefit of an experience with Buddha song. And I thought, oh, there's really different dysfunction in this church than there was in that Sangha. So I, I drew my own conclusion that uh, human beings, all of us, I think, are in significant ways dysfunctional and immature. And for my own personal reasons and my own personal karma and my own kind of personality preferences, I said, well, if I'm going to practice religion in dysfunctional community, then this is going to be my dysfunctional community because I choose it. And I think if any of us are going to participate in community in any kind of way, or if we're going to be married or if we're going to have friends, if we're going to be social, we have to, you know, do our best to be honest about, well, what dysfunction is in my marriage? What dysfunction is in this group of friends? What dysfunction is in this church? And decide if, you know, like we can live with it, if we can actually love it and, and serve. Uh, in a certain capacity, uh, not in spite of the dysfunction, but because of it, you know? So I feel a lot of joy. I feel like if I can acknowledge my own dysfunction deeply, then I have a certain ease about belonging to a dysfunctional congregation or Sangha. <laughs> Gorgeous. <laughs>
0: It is. It is gorgeous. Cause when when I first uh, when I first heard of you, um, there, if I can just be honest, there was a little bit of like, I don't get it. I don't. I don't understand. And as and again, that's like the initial like two weeks. And then you and I do an interview again originally. and We've done others since. We've met in person on a half dozen occasions, and yeah, yeah. and I've had we've had time just to sit and talk to each other. Um, that very quickly turned into admiration because I became aware that you were aware of the shortcomings, not only of our religious system, but of religious systems. Hmm. You, you aren't naive. Like I, and, and, and so once I understood like, Oh, he goes back in fully informed, fully aware that there's messiness here. And there is, as you point out, dysfunction, it, it quickly grew into admiration for your ability to do something that, even while I was in deconstructing, I realized that I don't know that when this comes to an end, if I could ever do that. Like um, I, I admire your your strength and your softness, and I mean both of those in the highest uh, mm. the highest form.
1: Well, that, that means a lot to me, Bill. I, I have nothing but love and respect for you. And I'll, I'll also offer you some good news, at least from my perspective, which is, you know, I, I do feel called to be in community. And my community is LDS. And I, you know, that's that's my particular human birth. And I, I love my tradition. But I also... No examples of people who are, you know, far more mature and developed and awake and all that stuff than I am, as far as I can tell, and they choose not to participate. You know, I, I, I don't take for granted that mature, woke people will go back to their home tradition. I hope they'll forgive whatever pain it caused them. I hope every human being will know such a profound forgiveness that they you know, experience their own wholeness at a deep level. And I've seen people work that out in different ways. And to me, that's what's really compelling about this whole conversation and this whole whole moment right now in our history, which is that I believe we're evolving a totally different conversation that is transgressive in the sense that it crosses boundaries. It starts to fade the line of in or out. You know, are you religious? Are you secular? I, I feel like we're finding a way to, you know, find religious experience in the secular and secular experience in the religious. And um, uh, I, I have great admiration for the path you walk. And I, I feel like we need each other um, to create the kind of future <laughs> that we want to have. Beautiful, beautiful.
0: You've also helped me dip my toes into meditation. I know you do a podcast. I I wonder if you can, for those who are listening, who are in the Salt Lake City area in terms of the lower lights, I I want you to reemphasize kind of where that's at, what you do. And then I also want you to spend a moment for those who have listened to this conversation and go like, wow, this McConkie guy is interesting to hear talk. Would you point people towards your podcast as well?
1: Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. Um, I mean, our website is lowerlightsslc.org. Um, I'm not going to spell that out. You can you can put a link on the podcast, and that you know that's really our home to all of our offerings. Um, yeah, we do a lot of community gatherings and practice meditation and study the world's wisdom traditions and look at you know how we can evolve our careers in the world and a way to have positive impact and, you know, create a society, be part of the society that we want to be a part of. We do all that at lower lights. You can find the podcast on that website or just go straight to the podcast, which is mindfulness plus. Um, so that's mindfulness org for the podcast. And if you want to take a really deep dive into a developmental journey, um, how inner work, you know, becomes really satisfying outer work in the world, uh, check out our program Spectra, you know, it's a developmentally based program that's designed to support people in their own journey of becoming and how to offer their most unique service to the world. So we're excited to launch that in 2019. Great.
0: So, lower lights. If you're in the Salt Lake City area, mindfulness plus as a podcast. Yeah. Uh, again, iTunes or anywhere else where you can catch uh, a you know a third party podcast catcher, uh, and then the Spectra, which is a developmental program. These, I'll just tell you, as one who's watched you and your work, uh, any listener who has any interest in development, meditation. Uh, A mix of Buddhism and Christianity Uh, I can't recommend Thomas McConkie enough. Thomas, thank you for your time today and uh, just from one friend to another, man, I love you and and appreciate uh, who you are and all that you stand for
1: I love you too, bro, thanks so much for having me